big crowd this morning. Appreciate everyone that came to be with us this morning. Last week, Brother Dusty introduced a uh, series of studies that were, we began. And it's all found in Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, Paul the writer there juxtaposes, sets two things at odds with one another. The fruits of the Spirit and the works of the flesh. Last week, Brother Dusty had a very nice diagram. Dusty, I was hoping I could find it on the internet, but I couldn't. Had the tree and it had the works of the flesh on one side and the fruits of the Spirit on the other. And it said we crucify the works of the flesh. And Brother Dusty talked to us about peace. And how that peace, how we get that peace and how we maintain that peace. This morning we're going to talk about one of the things on the other side. Works, one of the works of the flesh. We're going to talk about um, idolatry this morning. And when we first think about idolatry, we think about the golden calf, right? One of the first stories in the Bible and um, one of about idolatry and this golden calf, and we're like, hey man, I don't have a problem with idolatry. There's no golden calf in my house, right? There's, there's, I don't, there's no statues that I bow down to or kneel to. But that's a pretty simplistic view of idolatry, and we're going to expand on that a little bit this morning. Idolatry is introduced to us by the uh, study of uh, Galatians chapter 5 this way. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanliness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, immolations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, endings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I have told you in time past, that they which do these things shall not inherit the kingdom of heaven. So from this verse, I want us to recognize, number one, that idolatry is in the list, and we're going to talk about that. And number two, the very end of the list says, if we're involved in that, we're in trouble at the end time. That we won't be one of those that inherits the kingdom of, of God. So when you think about idolatry, the kind of the definition that you would get if you went to Strong's would be, you know, worshiping of other gods. But it's, there's also this concept of covetousness, and that's actually found in Colossians chapter 3 and verse number 5, where it says, Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanliness, and ornate affections, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And so we think about idolatry, it's any time we want something or think about something or desire something more than God. And we'll develop that definition a little bit more as we go. So this was uh, a problem, or this was defined for us very early on. In the, in the passage of the Bible, we commonly call the Ten Commandments. Two of the commandments there, the first two says, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I... The Lord your God am a jealous God. And I know I'm jealous there because when I read that, it kind of popped off the page. Because I think about jealousy as something that's probably not something you want to have, right? You don't want to be jealous of somebody or jealous of something. But it says our God is a jealous God. 
So I want to think about that for a couple of minutes and talk about jealousy. Number one, jealousy can be good, and it is in this case. Our God is a jealous God, but his jealousy is both righteous and loving. So what does that mean, righteous? Well, it means God has the right to be jealous if we put something else ahead of him. He made us. He built us. He designed us. He gives us everything we have. And if we put those things above him, he has a right. It's righteous for him um, to be jealous. He deserves our richest and deepest admiration. So we know that intellectually. And let me give you an example. So... Um, Many of you know I I run a construction company, and one of the groups that reports to me is safety. And and I see a lot of similarities in safety and the Christian walk, and here's one of them. Um, A year or so ago, we had a guy fall off a ladder, break his leg. And safety department rushes in and says, man, we need more training. We need, we got to have a stand down. We got to have, get everybody together, and we need to train them. I said, when's the last time we trained on ladders? Eight o'clock that morning. So is this really a training issue? Right? We know it intellectually. My guess is that guy knows to look at that ladder. He knows to check the labels. He knows to make sure none of the rungs are bent. He knows to make sure they're all clean of debris and clear. He knows to make sure the spreaders are open. He knows to maintain three points of contact on the ladder, two feet in a hand or two hands in a foot. He knows all of that. But he fell off the ladder. You see, we know that God deserves our deepest and our richest admiration, but there's a disconnect between knowing it and loving it and believing it and doing it. And that's what you got to get. That's what we have. That's what we try to do to, on safety at work. Is man, I got to get to their heart. I got to get them thinking about safety as they go up and down the ladder. We've got to get to thinking about. God as we go through our lives every day, all the time. That's what he wants, and that's what he deserves. Where did I put that thing? Number two, it's loving. He loves us. Our our greatest joy is when we've got a relationship with God. Think about Dusty Sermon last Sunday, right? When, when we're walking with the Lord, we've got peace. A peace that passes all understanding. We've got peace. And it's, it's, it's the epicenter. It's where we want to be. That's what God wants us. He loves us. He wants us to have that. He designed us that so that when we love Him and worship Him and put Him in the proper order, then our hearts are right. We've got peace. So God is jealous if he is not honored and treasured, and he's jealous if we're not satisfied <clears throat> with treasuring him. Both the how and the what. He wants us to honor him, and he wants that to be enough for us. <clears throat> so, why is he jealous? Well, I, I actually found this on the internet, and I, I thought it was well written. It's not scriptural. It's another man's opinion. 
But he put it this way, if we find God to be so boring or so negligible that we put other things in his place to satisfy us, we offend God and we destroy ourselves. It's kind of everything I've been saying all rolled into one little nice, neatly packed sentence. The Bible tells us that wrath is going to come on the idolater both because he is offended righteously and because he doesn't want us to be destroyed. He doesn't want us to destroy ourselves. He loves us. So maybe a broader definition of idolatry, idolatry would be an activity of the heart. And there's some key words up there where we're wanting something or craving something or loving something or treasuring something or enjoying something being satisfied by anything more than we're satisfied by God. A disordered love or desire, loving more than <clears throat> loving more than God what ought to be loved less than God. It's against a priority thing. Found another uh, little thing on the internet. You know, they take that calf and they actually put some words on there that we might have a problem with. We're not going to worship a golden calf, but we might worship our career, or our family, or money, or pleasure, or success, or comfort, or any of those other things. Another list that I put together was, hey, we may, we may love our spouse, or our boyfriend, or our girlfriend, or our children, or we may be so focused on good grades, approval of other people, success in business, sexual stimulation, hobbies, musical groups. I know a fellow that follows a musical group all across the country and even internationally. Man, he's focused on that group. He loves that group. Sports. We're right in the middle of Olympics. I'm not judging any of those athletes, but I think I know what it takes to get there. And it probably somewhere along the line takes more focus on that than it does on God. Right? It's their dream. They live it, breathe it, eat it. Everything is about getting to the Olympics and winning the gold. We think about sports in our daily lives, right? Football games and baseball games and soccer games and softball games and sports. Is just, it's entertainment. We love it. We love the thrill of the competition. We were at a game last night. <laughs> All honesty. We, had a, we went to a Ranger game last night. Great game. Enjoyed it. But when it starts to get, hey, I'm going to the game instead of focused on God, going to worship, reading the Bible, prayer. If I start putting all that stuff ahead, I've got it out of order. Your home, entertainment, your looks, any of those, any of these and more, that list is not exhaustive. Exhaustive. Anything that you put more attention to, pay more attention to, Love, crave, desire, remember all those words more than God can be idolatry. Paul puts it this way. <clears throat> for although we knew God, they did not honor him. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie 
and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is best forever. Amen. Romans chapter 1. Some key things to notice there. They did not honor God. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. Their hearts were dark, and they were foolish, and they exchanged or worshiped the creature more than the creator. That's Paul's definition of what idolatry is. So I want to go through a story in the uh, Old Testament, spend some time there. Uh, It's a story we're all familiar with. Well, I won't say all. Most people in the audience, I'm sure, I don't know every one of you personally, so I don't want to make an assumption. We're going to go through it. Um, There's a story in the Old Testament. It's found in 1 Samuel, and it's about the first king named Saul. And he's got a prophet that is um, working with him named Samuel. I always want to say Samuel (laughs) from Nigeria, Jerry. Samuel. Samuel. and so uh, we want to begin this story as a picture of what somebody thought Saul might have looked like. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, Samuel comes to Saul and he says, Hey, uh, the Lord appointed you king, and he's got something that, I need, that he needs done, and so I'm going to tell you what that is. And so he said, Hey, you remember those folks, that, uh, those Amalekites, um, at Amalek, we want you to go and utterly destroy them. Utterly destroy them. Men, women, children, everything. Wipe them off. All their animals, wipe them off the face of the earth. There's a group that's mixed in with the, Am- 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 with the folks at Amalek or the Amalekites, and um, they uh, uh, saw pardons them, the Kenites. He says, you know, he pardons them. He doesn't utterly destroy them. But they do utterly destroy the Amalekites. But Saul keeps King Agag alive along with the best of the flocks and um, the flocks and some of the herds in verse number 9. Um, and that upsets the Lord. It says the Lord repents that he had made Saul king. It upsets Samuel so much that he cries all night long at the failure of this king that they've anointed. And we're actually going to pick up reading uh, these, these pieces right here. They'll be in the reading. Starting with uh, 1 Samuel chapter 15 and verse number 16, it says, Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop! I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said unto him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? So this, um, I think, is, is referring back to chapter 9, when Saul is actually anointed king. So this part about him being little in his eyes, if you go back to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 9, it says, Saul answered, Am I not a Benjamite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is it not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribes of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me this way? So this is when he's finding out, hey, I'm going to be king. And he says, man, I'm in the tribe of Benjamin. And in the tribe, which is one of the least of the tribes, and within the tribe of Benjamin, my, my house, my family's the, the humblest of all of them. What are you talking to me about being king? So at one point, Saul's got this very humble attitude. And that's what uh, Samuel's talking about here. Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. 
Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Um, I was pouncing the spoil. I was like, what does that mean? In the uh, King James Version, I think it says, fly on the spoils. And um, as I, as what I found out is it's like a, a, a bird of prey or an animal that's, the, a bird that's flying over and it's looking for something to eat and it finds it and it dives it and it gets it. Sheila and I were in uh, Charleston a couple of weeks ago and uh, we saw, if I can get it, we saw pelicans doing that. They hover and then they just dive bomb, go completely underwater to get the prey. That's what we're talking about here with, um, that's the image that uh, they're talking here about Saul. He's like, you were just flying along and you saw all of these spoils that the Amalekites had and you just pounced on them. They became important to you. And then this next phrase uh, is um, kind of the telltale sign. And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoils, sheep, and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. I want you to notice the personal uh, pronouns. Saul. Okay, remember, so humble that he couldn't understand why he's king now. I have, I have, I have. His whole nature from a humble standpoint has changed. It's now all about what he's done. And the, the, the personal pronoun that I think really tells it all is this one at the very end. To sacrifice to the Lord, your God, in Gilgal. I'm not sure, but it sounds to me like he's distancing himself from this God that Samuel serves. He said, the Lord, your God. That's, they're going to sacrifice it to your God. And not only that, he, he, he blames the people, right, for having brought back the sheep. In the, so it's nothing, it's not me. It's not me, I'm king. I have, I have, I have. The people did that, and that's all for your God. So he's gotten a, a, a whole different approach now than in chapter 9 when he was anointed the king. And Samuel says that, basically. He says, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices and obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than to sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. He said, Man, God doesn't, God doesn't want to have to forgive your sins. He wants you not to sin. He doesn't, he, he doesn't want to have to offer sacrifices. He doesn't want you to have to offer sacrifices for not obeying him. He wants you to obey. That's greater. That's the best. That's what he wants. That's the focus. He says, for rebellion is as a sin of divination. The word rebellion means the refusal to obey. Sprinkle in a little bit of bitterness. Matt's talked on bitterness before. Every time we say bitterness, I always look at Matt for some reason. So what that means is I can tell my kids, whether adults now, so I can't tell them anything, but used to when they were my kids and they were little, I could say, hey, go clean your room. Now let's say the room doesn't get cleaned. There can be a lot of different reasons for that. They could have went up there and fell asleep. They could have went up there and got busy doing something else and forgot. Or they could have went up there and said, I ain't cleaning my room. I don't care what daddy said. Rebellion with a little bit of bitterness. Right? They're 
purposefully not doing what I've asked them to do. And that's what uh, Samuel's saying here. Purposefully not doing what has been asked. Divination, that's where you turn to something else for your source, for your information. Uh, Brother Jerry talked about that in his prayer this morning. He said, let's, let's not do that. Let's trust you, God, as the one true God. Let's trust you. Let's, let's understand that you see further than we see, that you have a greater plan for us than we can possibly know. Divination is the opposite of that. It's like, hey, let me go find a sorcerer. Let me go find a fortune teller. Let me try to figure out what God isn't telling me is the nature of that. Deuteronomy chapter 18 says, there shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or, or a sorcerer, bundles all that up to say somebody that's trying to find a different way than listening to the Lord their God. That's why rebellion and divination are so closely intertwined here in this verse. And this is the one that um, causes me pause. Stubbornness, pressing, pushing, arrogance. All you top A personalities, you don't have to raise your hand. I'll do it for you. So, so this is um, this is what this is Saul, top A personality, going, man, I got this. This is this is me. I'm king. I got it. I'm the leader. I'm in charge. I need my very similar to the guy building his barns, right? You remember that story? There's like 14 personal pronouns in that story where he's going to build bigger barns and I this, I that, me, my. This is the one that gives those of us that are type A personalities and um, just plow through everything a little bit of problems. We get presumptuous that we're smarter than the guy. We're the smartest guy in the room or the smartest girl in the room. There's some type A girls in the room today. Um, and we start pressing and pushing our opinions and thinking that we know better than everybody else. And even to the point here that Saul's saying, I know better than the God that sent me to do this this task. I'm going to bring back some stuff. I'm, you know, I know he said only destroy them, but I got a better idea. We'll do some sacrificing. You know, we'll, I, 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 I've got a better idea. My, my type A personality. I'm, I'm smart enough to do that. <clears throat> and it says that presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. And we've already talked about what idolatry gets us, right? What did it get Saul? Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. God took his kingdom away. What did it say in the verses we read earlier? If you do idolatry, you shall not inherit the kingdom of God. He will take our kingdom away for idolatry just like he did Saul's. So we've already talked about some of why it is dangerous. Number one, our God is a jealous God. Exodus chapter 10, just like Saul's kingdom was taken away, Galatians 5 says we will not inherit. I just said that. We read this um, earlier when we talked about covetousness and idolatry, but look at the way it ends. For which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. So idolatry and covetousness and evil, all this stuff, the wrath of God comes. Raise your hand if you want to be there when that happens. When the wrath of God, the Almighty God, that built us, that made us, that designed us, when that wrath comes, 
What side do you want to be on? You don't want to be on the wrath side. And so we think about idolatry and we think about all that's going on around us. And we think about everything that um, we do every day and the time that we spend and the things that we do. Where does God play? Brother Truman Teal did this exercise in Denison probably 25 years ago. Um, I don't know if it was original to him, but it was the first time I'd seen it. He said there's 168 hours in every week. I'll give you 50 hours to work, 60 hours to sleep. And oh, by the way, sleep. Everybody says seven to eight hours is enough. So if you're saying 10, maybe it's an idol. I don't know. Maybe sleep's more important than some of the other stuff you should be doing. Uh, 20 hours to prepare, eat, clean. Now, you could have a medical condition. I'm not, I'm not, if you've got a medical condition and you need to sleep, that's fine. Eight hours for your housework. Two hours if you've got a yard to clean it up. 28 to 35 hours. When you're talking about money, people will say this is your disposable income. This is stuff that you can go spend on. You've got 28 to 35 hours a week that you, you do do stuff that you don't have to do that you want to do. You don't have to do it. You want to do it. I didn't have to go to the ball game last night. I wanted to go to the ball game last night. Don't have to. All the stuff that's going on in our lives. Don't have to watch the TV. Don't have to listen to the radio. Don't have to. Don't have to. Don't have to. 28 to 35, 40 hours a week. And, and uh, some of us are retired. So we got another 50 on top of it. We're talking about 80, 90 hours a week. Then we're doing stuff that we want to do that we don't have to do. Here's an alarming step for you. How long in the average lifetime of a man and a woman, doesn't matter which of the genders you are, how long do you think you will sit in front of the television or be on social media in your lifetime. Here's the number. 11 years. 11 years you're going to spend it on the TV or scrolling on your phone. Couldn't we figure out something better to do for the Lord? 11 years. Somebody says, man, I wish I could get some of my time back. I mean, I'd give some of it back to you, probably. I mean, I don't know. Some people may not. Some people, it might be gaming. That was my earlier life when I was in college and high school. I mean, I didn't watch TV. I could, I could raise my hand and say, man, I don't watch a bit of TV. But I'll play a game all night long. All night long. Done it. Failed out of college my freshman year because of it. There was a game across the street at a 7-Eleven. I could put a quarter in that game and I could play it literally all night long. I would have so many lives that somebody would come in and say, hey man, you mind if I play? I said, no, play my lives. I'd go to class, come back, and still be alive on my quarter and I'd play some more. But I didn't have any problem with idols. There wasn't anything more important than God. So there is good news. It is found in 1 Thessalonians. It says, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, 
and how you turn to God from idols and serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath that is to come. The wrath is coming. The question is, do you want to be on Jesus' side or do you want to be on the world's side? Focused on other things, building companies, whatever that is. Where do you, you, you want to be? Where's your focus? <clears throat> so that's the, uh, the lesson of the morning. I appreciate your attention. Hopefully, it, um, I don't know, stung a little bit. It did for me. I'm not, I'm not trying to hurt anybody's feelings. I'm not, what I am trying to do is, is, is motivate you to go home this week and think. Right? To go home and go, have I got God on the pinnacle or do I have something else up there? Am I, am I giving God the number of hours and the energy and the time and the treasure that I need to have? It's, I'll be real still so I'll quit popping. Um, or is it um, something else on that pinnacle? What's the priority in my life? Now we're going to sing a song. And Brother Danny says this all the time. You don't have to come to the front and sit on the front to, 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 uh, and ask for prayers of the church, but you can. You can go home this afternoon, and you can lock yourself in a closet, you can go in the bedroom, you can grab your spouse's hand, you can do whatever you want to and pray yourselves about this or yourself about this. If you need the prayers of the church, if you want us to pray collectively, we can do that. If you um, have never obeyed the gospel, the wrath is coming. And the only way to protect yourself from the wrath is through Jesus. If uh, we can help you in any way, come while we stand and sing.